Well, we're glad you joined us today for our message today. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And I've entitled this message, Warnings from the Wilderness. Warnings from the Wilderness. Uh, I don't know about you, but growing up when I was in high school, particularly, uh, I wasn't too fond of history. I mean, I studied it and, and did okay, but um, I always walked away thinking, why do I have to learn all these dates? Why is it important to know about all this stuff? How, how's it going to help me in any way for my life? And I remember a history teacher telling us what a Harvard philosophy professor said one time. He's, he was quoted as saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that's so true. And history can teach us where other people have made mistakes. Maybe they met challenges in their lives. And if we fail to learn from their examples, so many times when we're in the same circumstances, we'll repeat the mistakes that they once made. And Paul really judged the history of Israel, providing many important lessons for the church. It's particularly for the Corinthian church. And in this chapter, in chapter 10, we're going to see that, that Paul looked to the history of Israel to alert the Corinthians that some of their knowledge regarding the uh, Christian liberties that they were celebrating in Christ and some of the freedom they had in Christ maybe was causing a little bit of arrogance in their hearts and calling their attention to Israel's wilderness wanderings in the days of Moses, Paul warned the Corinthian church could really risk, be at risk, of repeating the same mistakes that Israel made when they were in the wilderness and their sinful practices. So today we're going to be looking at warnings from the wilderness. See, one of the problems with the Corinthian church and the problem they were facing was how to determine what they should do in certain areas of their life and living that maybe the Bible doesn't address directly. There's a lot of things that the Bible tells us to do. There's a lot of things that the Bible tells us not to do. But in between those two areas, there's a lot of gray areas. It doesn't say a whole lot about other things in our lives as far as how we live our lives. So how does the Christian know whether he has the right or he doesn't have the right to do certain things that maybe are not mentioned, particularly in Scripture. We call them gray areas between the, the black and the white of good and bad. And so from chapter 8, as you remember, we've gone through this, through the, the first verse of chapter 11, that whole section is discussing areas that deal with this particular problem the Corinthians were struggling with. In chapter 8, Paul set forth the principle. You remember that Christians can do whatever Scripture does not forbid them as long as it's not morally wrong. And if we love God as God calls us to love, we will limit that freedom we have in Christ for the sake of maybe the weaker brother or sister in Christ. And then in chapter 11, he illustrates how that personally applied to him from his own life, his own ministry. 
um, to keep the Corinthians from thinking that somehow he was uh, in ministry just for money, just to get a check, he refused any kind of gift. Uh, he accepted no wages from them. It says that he even paid for his own bread. And he also modified and he adapted his lifestyle so that whatever ways possible, he could improve his witness to be more effective at, at bringing the gospel to those who've yet to hear the gospel of Christ. And that was his main calling. His main calling was to bring the gospel to bear upon the hearts and lives of those people who have yet to bow their knee to Christ that he ran across in his own life. The second half of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 illustrate how using our freedom affects others. It just affects others, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. But now we turn the page and we get to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, it illustrates how our use of freedom affects our lives, not just as individuals, but as the corporate church. And that's his main focus here. In verses 1 through 13, Paul shows how the misuse of liberty can even disqualify us from having effective service to Christ. Uh, I think one of the surest ways to fall in ministry when you're in ministry in any sort, whether it's full-time or just as a Christian, to fall into temptation and sin is to become overconfident. To become overconfident in your spiritual life. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Even in Proverbs 29, 23, it says, A man's pride shall bring him low. See, many of the Corinthian believers thought, and perhaps they had even communicated this to Paul in a letter that they apparently wrote to him, that they felt perfectly secure in their Christian lives. That almost like they had arrived, that they could do no wrong. And Paul even points this out. Remember back in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Just look at verses 8 to 14. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. He's speaking this almost sarcastically. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign. And that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you, speaking of the Corinthians, are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly, poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When re reviled we bless. When persecuted we endure. When slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and refuse all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. See, he knew the Corinthians had an understanding that they were saved, they were baptized, they were well taught. I mean, Paul taught them, Apollos taught them, 
Apparently, even Jesus had some influence on them because they were always arguing, well, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus. They were saved, they were well taught, they were baptized. The Bible says that they were lacking in no good gift. They presumably would, you'd think they'd be mature. But in reality, they were smug, they were proud, they were confident of their spiritual maturity. They felt they could do whatever they wanted. They thought they were strong enough to freely associate with the pagans in their communities and in their ceremonies and social activities and not be affected morally or spiritually as long as they didn't participate in outright idolatry or immorality, which they ended up doing, by the way. They could eat meat offers to idols. They could attend idol feasts. They could go to the festivals, and it wouldn't bother them at all. They didn't care about anybody else. As I said before, they were all about me. They were, had a me mentality. They didn't care about offending others. And they felt they could handle it themselves. They were overconfident. Paul tells us that they were self-deceived. They were self-deceived. Abusing their liberty not only harmed weaker brothers and sisters in Christ, but it also endangered their own spiritual lives. They could not live long on the far edge of freedom without falling into temptation and into sin. And that's just true no matter who you are. The mature, loving Christian does not try to stretch his liberty, his freedom, to the extreme to see how close to evil he can come without being harmed by it. I remember reading this illustration of a chariot driver of a very wealthy landowner and he lived way up on a hill and his chariot driver passed away and he needed to hire a new one and so he took applications and there was many in the town that were pretty good at driving chariots and so they all put their applications in and he whittled it down to about three and they were very skilled at what they did and the illustration says that the first driver got him in and he says, you know, basically I want you to get me from my castle up here on the, the cliffs down to the valley safely and quickly. Well, the chariot owner took that to heart and the, the chariot driver took that to heart, got in the chariot and took off. And all the way down, he was just barely near the edge of the cliff and they arrived safely at the bottom. And he thought, boy, I got this job, no problem. And the second guy, seeing what the, the first guy did, went even closer to the edge and made it an even faster time. And he thought, surely he, he beat them all. Well, the third chariot driver got in the chariot and rather than pushing the limit and rather than getting as close to the edge of the cliff that he could, he took his time. He did it efficiently, did it effectively, and when he got to the bottom, the owner said, you're hired. And the other ones protested, and they said, wait, we got you here faster. Why, why did he win? Why does he have the job and, and we're not? He said, well, basically, let me tell you, I'm in this chariot, 
And the number one thing I'm concerned about is my safety. My safety. And that third chariot driver was concerned about the safety. He wasn't so eager to get right up to the edge of the cliff to show how skilled of a chariot driver he was. See, sometimes I feel in the Christian lives we become so confident, we think, well, we can get right up to the edge of sinning. And we don't have the danger of falling or failing. Well, the warning in our text this morning before we read it is, is basically in verse 12. Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. See, the danger is not of falling from salvation. We are held secure in Christ. That's not the case here. But what's the danger? The danger is falling from holiness, falling from being useful in the service for Christ. And so Paul used Israel's history to point to the Corinthian church some sober, sober illustrations, really, of the pitfalls of being overconfident. And so we see here today the warnings from the wilderness. Well, let's read our text, and then we'll pray and get started with the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed, lest he fall. Let's stop there for this morning, and would you join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these warnings from the wilderness in the lives of the nation of Israel, that they could be a picture of your care for us. Lord, help us never to be overconfident in our spiritual lives. Let us therefore never think that we're, we stand lest we fall. Father, we pray this morning that you would lead us and guide us in our study of your word. Father, help us to apply it to our lives. We ask you to 
bless our time together this morning. If anyone who is listening to this message has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that today might be the day they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at how Paul starts. Hopefully you have your outline there, you've downloaded, or it's come to you in the uh, email that we send out. It's on the church app. And you can follow along in your Bibles as well. But look at the first verse. For I want you to know, brothers... Some translations say, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Um, that little word for there really connects this chapter with what he just said. And if you remember what he just said, it's a transitional word. And it shows that the whole section of what Paul is going to say is based on verse 27. You remember when we went through chapter 9, what 27 says. Paul ends chapter 9 and he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So it's a very serious thing Paul is bringing up to the Corinthians. He's wanting them to know that, you know what? All of us as believers should not be overconfident in our spirituality. It's a serious danger to think that way. It's one that the Lord does not take lightly. Several translations translate this verse, I want you to know to remember. <laughs> I want you to know to remember. Others translate it, I do not want you not to know. That's kind of what it's saying. Paul is saying this is so important, I don't want you not to know what I'm about to tell you. Well, what does he say? He says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. I want you to know. In other words, he doesn't want them to be ignorant of these things. He wants them to be aware of them, is another way of saying it. I want you to be aware of this. That, that phrase unaware or no or, or ignorant there. Basically, a lot of times it deals with prophecy. The Bible says a lot of times, I do not want you to be unaware or I don't want you to be ignorant about this. One is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, same word, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. For this we declare to you by, the, by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them to meet in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
Amen? That should give you a, a good feeling that knowing that the Lord is coming back. Don't be ignorant of that. Well, he also says don't be unaware or ignorant of the blindness of Israel. Romans 11.25 points that out. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this ministry. And he talks about the salvation of Israel. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, same term is being used in relation to the day of the Lord. Peter writes there, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, but do not overlook this one fact. In other words, don't be unaware of this, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Isn't that a blessing that God practices patience toward us? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Sometimes I hear Christians, oh, I just wish the Lord would come back. Well, you know what? The Lord will come back when he's ready to come back. And he won't come back until his entire church is saved, until all the elect are ushered into salvation. So he refers to being unaware of things in relationship to prophecy a lot of times, Paul does. And he uses that same terminology. But if you just look over a page in your Bible, it's to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says here, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed or unaware. Same idea. So Paul's method of helping the Corinthian church not be uninformed or unaware or ignorant is this. And this is here, first of all, in our outline. He, he accomplishes that by helping them to remember the failures of Israel. Helping them to remember the failures of Israel. Now, Israel was God's chosen people, and yet they messed up time and time again. And yet, at the same time, they had many privileges as God's people. And the first four verses here of chapter 10 point out some of these privileges. You know, we, we think that because we are privileged to live in America, or we're privileged to have a church to come to, or we're privileged to have our own copy of God's word, that somehow we're untouchable. See, we underestimate our own weakness in the flesh. We underestimate what could really come of us if we're not trusting in the Lord each and every day to, to bring us through. And see, Israel had many privileges, just like we do today. The first one here, verse, verse 1, we see the presence and direction of the Lord. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all, look at that word all. You should underline that because you're going to see it over and over and over again in this chapter that our fathers were all under the cloud. They were all under the cloud. You remember in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 13, what, what, did, this, what did the cloud represent? It re represented God's direction for them. Remember, God appeared in the cloud. It says in verse 21 of Exodus 13, and the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel 
by day and by night. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. It was what? It was a presence of God amongst them. When they looked up and they saw that cloud or they saw that pillar of fire, they knew oh, God is leading us. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it. It represented the presence of God. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, it says in verse 36, Exodus 40, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. In other words, they followed God's direction, his presence. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What's interesting is when you look at the New Testament, what is called the tabernacle, what is called a temple, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't we? And yet, we still mess up. I mean, here they had the presence of God with them to lead them each and every day. And yet, they messed up in so many different ways. And sometimes we're hard on them. But think about it. We have that same Holy Spirit power dwelling within us as Christians. And yet, we fail the Lord almost daily. So you see here the presence of the Lord, but you also see the protection of the Lord. Look at what it says. He talks about the cloud, but then he says at the end of verse 1, and all passed through the sea. Well, what's he speaking of here? It's a wonderful thing to know that the Lord is present with you, but it's also a wonderful thing to know that the Lord is protecting you, is it not? See, God provides many uh, angels for us, for our protection. The Bible says that he put a hedge of protection around Job. And you say, wow, that didn't work out too well. Well, yeah, no, it worked out exactly how God wanted it to work out. Because that hedge of protect, protection around Job only allowed what God allowed to happen to Job to happen. The enemy couldn't just do whatever he wanted to Job, if you recall the story. God was in control. And he surrounded us with the protection of a host of angels. I mean, some of us need more angels than others. <laughs> Maybe the way we drive or whatever it might be. But God's protecting us. We can all probably think back in our lives when there was a situation where we may not have, should not have lived through it, whatever it might have been. And yet we did. And we're here today because of God's protection. Well, in Exodus chapter 14, we see this in verse 21. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back. Remember, they were escaping from a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. I mean, think about it. Here they are. They're trying to escape, okay, the Egyptians, and they come up to the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. The Egyptian army is behind them. God supernaturally creates 
a strong east wind, which would have been a very dry wind. And it split the waters in half. And not only that, when they walked across that path between those two walls of water, they walked on dry ground. I mean, think about that. That's miraculous in and of itself. It says in verse 22, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And we know the, the story down there, verse 29, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Why? Because everything, as soon as Israel was on the other side, those walls gave way and it drowned the Egyptian army. Israel saw the great power that God used against the Egyptians. It says in verse 31, So people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So they had God's presence with them. They saw God's protection amongst them. And yet, they still mess up. They still mess up. And yet, we have the same thing today. We have the presence of God with us. We have God protecting us. And yet, at times, we still fail. Now, look at verse, 20, or verse 2 of chapter 10, because this is kind of interesting. It says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, and in the sea. What is he speaking of here? All baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. What he's saying basically, just to kind of bring it down on the bottom shelf here, he's saying they were identifying with Moses as their leader. They identified with Moses as their leader. That word baptism, baptizo, it's used some 120 times in our English Bibles, about 123 times in, our, in the Greek text in the New Testament. And it's used in several ways, five ways, basically, and they're there in your outline. First of all, it's used figuratively. It's used figuratively here. And it's saying they're baptized into the cloud and the sea. Well, that's a figurative statement. Or the second way is emotionally. Uh, the King James says in verse 22 of Matthew 20, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you asked. They were all asking about... Um, being in heaven with the Lord. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, we are able. And most of them did die a, a martyr's death, by the way. All of them did. And so when we see this, we, it has the idea of identifying with the suffering of Christ. That's what that word baptizo means here. Well, it also means not just figuratively and emotionally, but it's also used in a physical way. And we know that probably is the most common way we understand when somebody says they want to get baptized or they got baptized. It means they got dunked in the water. That's what that word means, okay? It means to be completely immersed. And if you have any question about that, just look at, at that word, the same word in secular uh, writings, when a ship goes down and it sinks at sea, guess what the word they use for it to describe it when it sinks to the bottom of the sea? They use the word baptizo. It's completely covered in water. We see baptism used in a physical way in Acts chapter 8, verses 35 and 38, where Philip is witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch 
And after he responds affirmatively, he says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? That's the physical word for, or the physical definition of baptism. It's a dunking in water. And then fourthly, it's also used spiritually. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says we're all baptized into the body of Christ. That's a spiritual meaning. Or even eternally, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it speaks of, uh, there it says, verse 11, I baptize you with the water, with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, this is John the Baptist speaking, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, a lot of people say, oh, that means the, you know, a lot of charismatic people say, oh, that's the baptism of fire. No, that's not what that's speaking about. It says in verse 12 there, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's not speaking of salvation. That's speaking of hell. That's speaking of eternal judgment. So we have to be clear here what we're speaking of. But that word baptized or baptizo means to be immersed in. You could be filled with sorrow. You could be baptized with grief. Okay? And that's one thing that they uh, understood here. So we see the presence of the Lord. We see the protection of the Lord. But then also, verses 3 and 4, you see the provision of the Lord. The provision of the Lord. Look at what it says. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This is amazing. God supernaturally provided for them. What did he provide for them? We know the story. He provided what? Manna. Manna, bread from heaven. That word manna means what is it? <laughs> That's what Israel said when, they, when it fell from the sky and they could eat it. They said, what is it? So they called it manna. It's used to speak of God's provision. And they all ate the same spiritual food. They all ate the same spiritual drink. See that the manner and the water here that God provided for them represents spiritual food, not just physical food. And that's so important for us to understand that God is providing for them. God provides for us, doesn't he? He makes provisions for us probably on a daily basis. When you get to the New, or the, the New Testament, you see John in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus said to them in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And this is what Jesus spoke of when he says he is the bread of what? Life. So they saw the presence of God, they felt the protection of God, they saw the provision of God over and over and over again, and yet they still messed up. They still lived lives that were disobedient. Well, look at verses 5 to 10 here, because now we, we see their problems. We see their problems. Not just their, 
the, the presence of God and the protection of God and the provision of God. But we finally get here in verse 10 or verse 5, it speaks of their problems. Nevertheless, with most of them, it says, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Some translations say many. It is many. It's almost all of them he was not pleased with. In spite of all their privileges, it says there in verse 6, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown, verse 5, in the wilderness. In spite of all their privileges that God had blessed them with, God was not pleased with them. Remember, only who? Joshua and Caleb actually got to go into the land. And the, the children that were born in the wilderness... But all of their moms, their dads, their grandparents, they all died because God was not pleased with them. They messed up big time in spite of all that God gave them. It's really amazing. And yet, if we're honest, when we look at our own lives, we do the same thing. God blesses us and he graces us with love and forgiveness and the spirit and the word, free country in which we can worship. And yet, we still mess up. Well, that's their privileges, but they also are dealing with a lack of contentment. A lack of contentment. Um, these, this was their number one problem, really. You have their lack of contentment with God's provision. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Let me ask you, are you content with what God has provided for you? I mean, sometimes we want more. We want bigger, better. You know, it's just the American way, right? We have to be careful with that mentality. We have to be content in all circumstances, the Bible says. First Timothy 6.6 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out. I've never been to a funeral or seen a funeral where there was a U-Haul truck following the hearse. It just doesn't work that way. What you have here on earth stays here on earth. 1 Timothy goes on in verse 9, chapter 6, but to those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, with, into a snare, into many seamless and harmful desires. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. And we see this in our society time and time again. But Israel had a lack of contentment. If you turn back to Numbers chapter 11, the Old, Old Testament, Numbers chapter 11, it tells us here what was going on. It says, And the people complained, in verse 1, in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. I mean, here he is. He's there amongst them. He's providing his presence, his provision, his protection. And they start to grumble about it. He gets ticked off. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. It was almost like a warning to them. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. In verse 4, 
Now the rabble or, or the mixed multitude is really the idea and they, they were mixing their company with people from uh, other pagan societies that shouldn't have been happening but that's what was happening to them. You know the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals well that's what happened here. That was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said oh that we had meat to eat. Remember, they were just eating this manna that God supernaturally provided for them. So they began, it got old after a while. If we had meat to eat, verse 5, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing in the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Verse 6, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this, what is it, this manna to look at. See, it's funny how God blesses us with something and at the time of that blessing, when he gave them that manna, they thought, wow, praise God. He saved us from starving to death. He's providing for us. But you get into the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth week, whatever, on and on and on, eating the same stuff, pretty soon you, you grow to hate it. Even though it's still a supernatural provision from God. And that's what they began to look at. God sometimes blesses us with things and then we gripe about it later. Well, down in verse 34 of chapter 11, Numbers, says, therefore, the name of that place was, ca was called Kibroth Hateva because there they buried the people who had the craving. See, it's the more syndrome. The more syndrome. The lack of contentment will get you every time. And that's what happened to these people. God was supernaturally providing for them, but after a while they got tired of his provision. And they started to long for the things in their old life. Boy, you know, some of that food we had down there, that fish and all. See, God is, is keeping them dependent on him. And so they had a lack of contentment. Well, verse seven, we see they also had a lack of conviction about a couple things idolatry, and all that Egypt offered them. Look at what it says in verse, verse uh, 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So he's pointing out to them, look, you know, Israel had God providing for them, but you know what? They grew discontented. And now what Paul is pointing out to them is they're, they're, they're showing a lack of conviction. They're longing for these things that were part of their life when they were in captivity. And now God is, Paul, through Paul, is pointing this out to the Corinthian church. They had a lack of conviction about idolatry and all that Egypt offered them. In Exodus chapter 32 we see this. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 10. You remember this story. Verse 1, when the, the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, remember he went up to spend some time with the Lord, and people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, they said to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. They got tired of waiting for Moses. Hey, he, I don't even know if he's coming back. We don't know what happened to him. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, you think they would be happy he did it. 
We do not know what has become of him. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, well, you know what? Here's what I'll do. Take off your rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So Aaron takes it upon himself to deal with this situation. And all the people, verse 3, took off all the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a, with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and then, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine just outright idolatry? Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, what did he do? He built an altar before it. And Aaron made a prop proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be the feast, shall be a feast to the Lord. Verse 6, and they arose up early the next day and the burnt and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. See, that's where this text comes from. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Can't leave these people alone for a second. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded him. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and even sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. See, there was a lack of contentment, a lack of conviction that led to God's judgment upon them. But look at what happens. It gets even worse. There was a lack of control over even their own sexual desires. Verse 8, it says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. What's he saying? He's saying here that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play and there was sexual immorality involved. And see, in the Corinthian church, that was even involved in the church itself. Hard to believe, but it was true. Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, tells us this story. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So they began to intermarry with the daughters of pagans. Verse 2, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. See, we live in a, in a world today, unfortunately, where the game of our society is toleration. Toleration. You have to tolerate everything. You know, you're okay, I'm okay, you like me, I like you, everybody's going to be politically correct. See, that mentality has even crept into our churches, unfortunately. Unfortunately. 
I've actually heard pastors tell me personally, when I ask, well, what have you been teaching on? Well, we don't really teach much doctrine. You know, that doctrine, it divides. I said, well, if you don't teach doctrine, what do you teach? See, everybody wants us to have some kind of middle ground because that way you don't offend anybody. So if you just don't teach on anything, you're not going to offend anybody. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. In other words, you better be careful. If everybody's saying good things about you, you better look around. You better look on your, over your shoulder. See, there comes a time, brothers and sisters, when you have to stand up for what is right, not just for what is liked. And here, this is exactly what we see. Paul is telling them, look, don't think that you can just indulge in this sexual immorality in your own church and not hurt other people and hurt yourselves and mostly hurt the cause of Christ. So they had a lack of contentment, a lack of conviction, a lack of control. And then here in verse 9, they had a lack of confidence in the Lord's purposes and direction. Look at what he says. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. What is this? We must not put Christ to the test. They were destroyed by serpents. That's out of Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, verse 4. They set out by the way of the Red Sea to go to, around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient, it says, on the way. They became impatient. They were on a trip, a road trip, doing what God wanted them to do, and what happened? Are we there yet? Can we turn around? Do we have to continue to go and do this? They started whining. They became impatient on the way. See, a lot of people come to Christ, a lot of people commit to following Christ, and they think it's just going to be this big cakewalk, a walk in the park. It's not. The Christian life is definitely not a cakewalk. Matter of fact, the Bible says that we have to enter the kingdom of God with great tribulation, great trials. It's not a cakewalk. It's not easy. That's why it's described as the narrow way. It's restrictive. It's hard. It's difficult. Today, unfortunately, many churches have adopted the mentality, oh, you're just happy, happy in Jesus. Just, you know, just be happy till he comes back. No, it's a struggle. It's a struggle living out your faith here on this earth. It's a struggle standing up for what is right. It's a struggle doing the right thing all the time. Sometimes we don't. Well, what happened here in Numbers 21? They grew impatient, and then guess what? The people spoke against Moses, and they spoke against God. Wow. Remember, Moses was God's appointed leader to them. Here's what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? What were they doing? They were grumbling. They were complaining. They said, for there's no food, there's no water. And we loathe this worthless food. In other words, 
the blessing that God gave them to sustain them became loathsome to them. They were just worn out. You know, and we point our fingers at them and say, well, how could they do that? But we, we have a tendency to go there too, to be honest. Problems in life can wear us down big time. Maybe it's health issues, maybe it's financial issues, maybe it's family issues. I mean, life is not easy. But you know what? In the end, it's all for his glory. It's all for his glory. We need to keep that in mind. Well, look at what it continues there in Numbers 21, verse 6. Then the Lord set fiery serpents among them, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Kind of got your attention, didn't it? Send fiery serpents to bite you <laughs> and, and kill you. That would wake you up. For we have sinned, the people said, and we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. It's interesting. God just didn't tell Moses, okay, I'll take the serpents away and everything's going back to normal. No. What's God doing? He's saying there's going to be consequences for their attitude. There's going to be consequences for their lack of confidence in my plan and purpose for them. Even though I've given you all these privileges, these people are still whining. They're still complaining. So here's what's going to happen. The serpents are going to be there, but when they bite the people, if they look at the pole, they're going to live. <laughs> so they still have to be obedient. I mean, can you imagine somebody being bitten by the serpent and saying, I'm not going to look at that pole. I'm not going to look at that bronze serpent on that head on that pole, they would die. But God gave them the opportunity to live. Just like John chapter 3 verse 14, John says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Wow. How fitting it is that the one who crushed the head of the serpent has been nailed to a pole, been nailed to a cross. The Bible tells us, beloved, that all of our transgressions, all of our sins, were nailed to the cross of Christ. And victory over the enemy was achieved when Jesus Christ died on that cross. He crushed him. And the power of the enemy was broken. And victory over the enemy was achieved when Jesus Christ died on that cross and crushed him and the power of the enemy was broken, says Hebrews. What's the answer? Look and live. See, we need to get our eyes back on the Lord. Sometimes we get caught up with all the things that are going on in our lives and we forget, wait, we got to look and live. We need to look to the Savior. Sometimes to deal with people and all they want is counsel. They want somebody to come along and put their arm around them and there's, there's a time and a place for that. Don't get me wrong. But I'll be the first one to tell you, sometimes people just need a spiritual boot in the pants to get their focus back on what God wants them to focus on. Have we forgotten God is still on the throne? 
God, in his sovereignty, is still carrying out his plan and his purpose for his children. See, God uses all these trials, these tribulations in our lives to make us stronger, to refine us. Whenever we are tried, that we will come forth as gold. So don't lack confidence in God's purpose and plan for your life, even though it may be a tough life. It may be difficult. But God is still caring for you in ways you may not even know. So we've seen a lack of contentment, lack of conviction, lack of control, lack of confidence. Well, verse 10, we see a lack of commitment. It says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Wow. Grumble. This word in the original language, it's kind of fun to pronounce. It's goguzo. Goguzo. It's used some eight times. And it says here that that's exactly what they were doing. They began to grumble. And Paul told the Corinthians, look, don't start grumbling. Don't start grumbling. We see back in Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, it, it speaks of the sons of Korah and how they began to try to take over. Verse 2, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. You see what's happening here? A hostile takeover is what's happening. Chosen from the assembly, well-known men. What were they rebelling against? They were rebelling against Moses, God's chosen servant. Verse 3, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? I mean, do I have to remind you? <clears throat> Moses didn't want that job. Moses was a humble man. He didn't want this job, but he took it because he wanted to be obedient to the Lord. Verse 13. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land of flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us? Boy, they were having a hard time submitting to God's leadership. We shouldn't find that odd, should we? It happens in churches across the, around the world. People grow weary. They begin to rebel. And then they question authority. We see it going on even now in our society. See, the problem is, is this is the American way. You know, I love our country, don't get me wrong. But the idea, let's just take a, a vote, and whatever the majority says, let's go with that. Do you ever understand sometimes the majority can be wrong? I mean, that's how we had our marriage laws changed here first in California and then in the nation. 
that you had a minority of people that believed the Bible, that marriage was between a man and a woman for life. That's what marriage is. That's what it continues to be. That's what the law was based on. But what happened is the, the majority said, wait a minute, you can't allow the minority who believe this to actually carry this out. That's discriminating against the majority of people. Most people don't believe the Bible. Doesn't the majority rule? I mean, thank God for our country, but it's, it's not a democracy. We were established as a constitutional republic. What does that mean? It means that we select leaders to go and make decisions on our behalf. But that's not what it's developing into today. We see it all around us. Most people are taught in school, look, it's up to whatever the majority says. If you have 51%, you have majority, then you have to do what they say. Whether it's right or wrong is irrelevant. Whether it's moral or immoral, it's irrelevant. See, we need leaders in Washington today that will stand up for what is right, even if 90% of the majority says it's not. See, something's wrong. And there was a price that they paid for their little rebellion here in number 16. In verse 35, it says, And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 leaders of their little society who was offering incense. Verse 41, But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. They don't learn against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Verse 49, those, now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who have died in the affair of Korah. Almost 15,000 people dead. Why? Because of a rebellion. Because of their lack of commitment to God and his leaders. We need to be careful the enemy always wants to divide. The, always, the enemy always wants to question leadership. There's a lack of commitment here to Moses as God's leader and ultimately to God. And the enemy always chooses targets to knock down, to bring low the spiritual leader of any church or organization. Well, what was God's purpose in all this? Quickly, verse 11. Now these things happened to them. Oh, one more word here on verse 10. Notice it says there at the end, we must not put Christ to the test as uh, some did. They were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. They were destroyed by the destroyer. One translation says an angel. Angel destroyer. No, this was God. And I just read you the passage of how he destroyed them. God carries out his hand of judgment. Don't think that you can just sin and get away with it. Even in the age of grace, mind you. I mean, God may be patient, God may be gracious with you. But even in the New Testament, we're told of instances where people pushed God over the edge 
and he had to take them out. You know, sin has consequences. Well, as you see this purpose here as we close out, these things happened to them as an example, it says. See, their failures were illustrations. They were examples to us and to the Corinthian church. He wanted them to know that, look, here is some living examples in the history of Israel. Don't just set these aside. This too can happen to you. So their failures were illustrations or examples, and then their failures were instruction for us. Notice it says, but they were written down for our instruction. That word's used some 11 times. It means to place in the mind of, or to admonish, or to warn someone. It's used in other scriptures, one being Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, our admonishment, you might say. Or 1 Corinthians 4, 14, I do not write these things, we already read this, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you or to instruct you as my beloved children. Paul wanted them to know that they needed instruction. That same word is used to fathers. Don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and what? Instruction of the Lord. Or in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That word warning there in our English translation is the word instruction. And lastly, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, there it is, one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Over and over again, we're told that you know what? God has given us warnings from the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness. And we need to be reminded that these things apply to our lives as well. So we see that Paul wanted to give them warnings from the wilderness. Examples to them of what God did in the life of Israel. So that they would learn from them, that they would grow, that they would change their ways. Or they would have to deal with the consequences and deal with God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these warnings from the wilderness in the, in the life of the nation of Israel. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we apply these truths to our lives. Help us never to Overlook your presence, your care for us, your provision, your protection. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this message who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I, I ask, Lord, that you would just let yourself be known to them personally. Father, that you would draw them to yourself as you promised to do. Lord, quicken their heart and their mind to understand the gospel, the fact that there are sinners in need of a savior. There's no one listening who's yet to live a perfect life. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways and yet, Father, we pray that you would remind us 
of the free gift of salvation that's available to us through the work of Christ. Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He went to a cruel cross. He died. He gave up his life voluntarily for us. And then the Bible says on the third day he rose from the grave. He paid for the sins of all those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ as their Savior. And so, Lord, we pray today that if there's any who are listening who have yet to do that, I pray that today might be the day they cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for our politicians. We pray for those that lead us and guide us. Lord, we pray for our church that during this time, Father, that we would remind ourselves that we should be desiring to join together for worship once again. Father, give us wisdom as we seek to understand best when to reopen the doors so that we could fellowship together once again. Lord, I know people are growing impatient, but Father, we wait on you. We pray that you would do that work in the hearts of your people. We thank you. Give us a good week coming up. We pray that it would be lived for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.